Friends, good morning. The Lord be with you. It is very good to be here together. Uh, this is a great crowd compared to <laughs> what I've experienced uh, for a long, long time. It's also good uh, in Christ the veil is removed. <laughs> so unlike Moses, I stand here and we hope the day will be here soon when we can all do that and uh, behold one another face to face again. When uh, Peter contacted me asking if I could preach today, he pointed out that it's Ascension Sunday, or it would be Ascension Sunday, and asked if I could do something appropriate for that day. Uh, one of the great days of the Christian year, and my mind immediately went to one of the great Ascension texts in the New Testament, uh, which is in Colossians 3. I'm going to read verses 1 through 14. And as I do that, I invite you first to pray with me. Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence. May your word be our rule, your spirit our teacher, and your greater glory our supreme concern through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all, and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. This is the word of the Lord. Um, I have inherited from my father's library a little book published by Erdmans in 1933, written by uh, a seminary professor from Western Seminary, Albertus Peters. He had been a, an early missionary to Japan around the turn of the 20th century, 
And after serving there a number of years, he uh, came back to teach at the seminary. He was one of my father's favorite professors. And someone after the first service came up to me in the lobby and said, that was our religion textbook at Western Christian High School in Hull, Iowa, <laughs> in, sometime in the late 40s. Wonderful little book. But I'm interested in the title especially, Facts and Mysteries of the Christian Faith, because that is a very apt description of the passage I read from Colossians 3, especially the opening verses. So let me start with a, a fact or two. And the facts have to do with Jesus in his resurrected, uh, glorified, exalted existence at the right hand of the Father. You notice the little phrase Paul drops in there, where Christ is? Where is Christ right now? Our tendency is to say, well, he's here, isn't he? Two or three are gathered in his name. There am I in the mystery. Lo, I am with you always to the end of the world. Uh, it's true. He is here. He's not only with us, he is within us, Christ in us, the hope of glory. Uh, you ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. But that reality is experienced in and through the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And that may seem like a quibble to you or a technicality. And it's true, we don't usually think that way or talk that way. But nevertheless, it is fundamentally important. It's a fact. It's one of the facts of our faith. Uh, he's not here, he is there. Um, and that's significant for a number of reasons. So you notice uh, in this little phrase, and as we repeat it essentially over and over in the creed, when we rehearse the basic facts of Christ's work, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. The basic facts of Christ's life. Now, we don't affirm that in some crude, overly literalistic way. We never have, really. Christians don't believe in a three-tier universe, you know, so that Jesus kind of flew up like a, a rocket ship, a, maybe a SpaceX with the help of Elon Musk, and he somehow went beyond the clouds. Heaven in the Bible, in the New Testament, doesn't refer to someplace up there. It refers to ultimate reality, the place where God is and where God reigns. And the ascension, as Luther said, didn't happen the way you climb a ladder up into the second story of your house. It means he is above all things and over all things and in all things. That's the reality we confess when we confess that he ascended into heaven. And it's important for a number of reasons. I don't want to dwell on this too long. Uh, but let me just tick off several things uh, to bear in mind. First of all, the ascension uh, testifies to the permanence of the incarnation. 
the incarnation was not a temporary expedient that Jesus adopted for a little while and then sloughed his body off so he could go on living in spirit in some wonderful way. He didn't become disincarnated at the resurrection. On the contrary, his body was raised and transformed, glorified, and he's in it still. So that's the next thing. It testifies to the reality of the resurrection, a physical resurrection. No physical ascension, no physical resurrection. We believe that Jesus is somewhere. His body is somewhere. And that somewhere, notice his position at the right hand of God, the position of greatest glory and ultimate authority. Seated at the right hand, his posture is significant. Hebrews makes a great point out of this. When he had made satisfaction for sins, he sat down. And again, we don't literally believe that the Father and the Son are sitting on golden chairs somewhere. Uh, Its significance is spiritual. It means his work is finished as Savior. He continues as our intercessor, our advocate. We sang that beautiful Wesley hymn uh, to open And we went through, that's actually all the theology of the ascension is expressed in that hymn, except for a a problem at the beginning of the fifth stanza. He's not going to remain there forever. He's coming back. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, so we could also say, there today, here tomorrow, we also shall appear with him in glory. Those are the facts, and they're significant. And now the mystery, the mystery has to do with us. Twice in these verses at the beginning of Colossians 3, Paul underscores the mystery that Christ is our life. Your life is hidden with Christ in God when Christ who is your life appears. We sometimes call it the mystical union between Christ and the church. Christ is our life. And that's hidden because it's a truth we know by faith and not by sight. It's not obvious. We don't look necessarily any different from anyone else. Our lives sort of run the normal human course. We suffer We have joys and sorrows. We grow old. We become weaker and more feeble. Ultimately, we are prey to death. But none of that can shake our real life because our real life is in Christ, hidden with him in God. And because of this, What Jesus has done involves us as well. We have died with him. We have been raised with him. We are seated with him above, ruling and reigning over all. In him our head, and one day we will appear with him. So this whole passage Paul uh, is writing here is in the context of these realities, not just Jesus died for us, we died in him. 
So listen uh, to how he puts it in uh, chapter 2, verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you say, my life is in Christ. He's my real ultimate reality. I died with him. I was buried. I've been raised with him. I'm seated with him. When did that happen? And the answer is, when we were baptized. Baptism symbolically represents these realities, ultimately realized by faith. So Paul says, through faith in the powerful working of God. Uh, Again, it's not magic water, as Mike said, but the realities of our death and burial and resurrection with Christ or in Christ are graphically represented in the symbol of water. Uh, there's a, uh, I don't know if you, some of you maybe have been to Ephesus. It's a magnificent site, uh, one of the great Greco-Roman ruins of the ancient world, and you can literally walk on the stones that Paul walked on, kind of a thrill. But for me, uh, one of the greatest sites uh, just outside of Ephesus are the ruins of the Church of St. John, the Basilica Uh, dedicated to St. John, who is reputed to be buried there. A church from the 6th century built by Justinian. Uh, And in addition to the basic outline of the basilica, the broken pillars, you can see the baptistry, uh, the early Christian baptistry, which graphically uh, allowed converts to live through and into these realities. So it's cruciform in shape. It's, uh, there's no structure left. It's just below ground. It's probably about three feet deep. And there are steps leading down into the center of the cross where the convert would be buried in the water, raised again, and then steps leading up and out where a white robe would be given to the baptized and a bit of honey placed on their lips, the sweetness of the new life. This is all over this passage. Right in that context, you can see exactly what Paul is getting at. This has happened to us. This is our reality. And the question is, So what? Does that matter to you? Does that make a difference to me in the way I live from one day to the next? Can I just sort of intellectually assent to this? Or does it have some kind of transforming power in my life? So you, you, I'm sure you know all about um, the indicatives and the imperatives in the Pauline epistles. Uh, so indicative and imperative. In, in the ancient languages, it's, it's determined by the spelling of the verb. For us in English, we use word order. So John hit the ball, indicative. Hit the ball, John, imperative. Uh, here, 
there's a mix, mixture throughout of indicative and imperative. And the imperatives are all introduced as conclusions that Paul draws from the wonderful truth and the mystery of Christ's ascended reigning life and our life hidden in him. I hesitated to use this, but I threw it in the first time. I can't resist. I have come upon, several months ago, a series of detective stories written by a guy named Spencer Quinn. It's his pen name. Uh, They're the Chet and Bernie stories, and they're detective stories starring a detective named Bernie and his partner Chet. And Bernie's a good guy. He's somewhat down on his luck at times, but he's got integrity, and he's smart, and he always solves the case. Uh, Chet is his partner. Chet narrates the stories, sort of like Watson does for Sherlock Holmes, except with this one difference. Chet is a dog. And you read these stories, and they just make you chuckle (laughs) because you think that must be how a dog's mind works. He's always kind of losing track of, of the narrative and forgetting or being distracted by a piece of food he sees on the floor. But at some point in the story, Chet will sum up where they've come, the suspects that they've identified, the clues that they have unearthed, and he'll sum it all up and he'll say, so therefore, and then he stops because he's a dog and he can't reason. He can't take the next step. He can't think logically. So he backs off and he says, all the so therefore is our Bernie's department. That's Bernie's department. Well, in the New Testament, folks, the so therefores are all Pauline. They're all Paul's department. And here there are three of them. Uh, You might not catch them all because he uses the same word three times, which could be translated either therefore or then, but it's clearly a conclusion that he's drawing. The first one is this in verse 1. If then or if therefore you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, set your hearts on the things that are above, So the first implication of these truths for us has to do with our basic mindset, our value system, our orientation in life. What do we think about? What do we care about? What are we committed to? What are we living for? That's the question we're we're invited to to answer. Is this real? Or is this just so much uh, Bible talk? And by the way, let me just say this. The things that are above, that doesn't mean otherworldly concerns. This isn't an invitation to sort of somehow disengage from the stuff of everyday life and just sort of float along, oh, I'm just thinking about heaven all the time. I can't wait. Uh, I, can't, I wonder what it's like. Uh, no, far from, the things that are above were defined quite clearly by Jesus when he told us, here's how you start your prayers. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The things that are above are the things of the kingdom. 
Seek first his kingdom and righteousness. And then you'll get all this other stuff as well. Do we have the order right, I wonder? Really? I don't know. I look at myself and I'm pretty happy thinking about my own comfort and pleasure. And by the way, retirement is great. Can I just say that? Set your hearts on things that are above. Wow. Do I do that? This is not escapism. There's a great passage from C.S. Lewis. I don't even know where it is anymore. It's number 26 in my quote book, so that means I wrote this down many years ago Um, because I'm over 300 now. But listen to this. A continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you will get neither. So that's conclusion one. Here's conclusion number two. It's in verse five. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing you have put off the old self and have put on the new. There's baptism again, that imagery. You put off like a a set of clothes your old sinful nature and you put on your new nature in Christ. Except Paul doesn't just say put it off, he says put it to death kill it. There's a ruthlessness about this. And again, this is consistent with what he says elsewhere in the New Testament. You know, our catechism defines true repentance or conversion as the dying away of the old self and the uh, coming to life of the new self. That's the newer translation. I think the old word was better, even though it had to be. The old way was mortifying the old self. From the Latin word mortuus, which means death. Dying away the old self, that sounds like maybe a natural process, like your old self simply passes away and you wave goodbye to it. No, friends, it takes killing. It takes a deal of killing, as you well know, and so do I. Because we've been at it. for a long, long time. And like the hydra, it keeps growing back again. Necrotize it. That's the word Paul uses, uh, sort of. 
Necro, necros is the Greek root, mortus is the Latin, mortify the, mortify the old nature. Uh, John Owen, the great Puritan theologian, has a little book called The Mortification of Sin. And uh, it's an exercise on the explication of Romans 8, 13, just one verse. It goes like this, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die to the old nature. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And Owen has a memorable line where he says, we must always be killing sin or it will be killing us. So again, do we do this? Do we draw this conclusion? Do you bite your tongue before you pass on some salacious remark or slanderous, even if it's true, <laughs> uh, word about some other person? Do you pluck out your eye before you look at unclean things? Do you cut off your hand before you stick it someplace and take something that isn't yours? Put it to death. Kill it or it will kill you. And then this third one, it's down in verse 12. Put on then or put on therefore as God's beloved, God's chosen ones. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another. Boy, if ever there was a word for this COVID season, it's here, isn't it? Bearing with one another, forgiving one another, forbearing one another. You know what the difference between forgiveness and forbearance? Forgiveness is for serious offenses. Then you forgive. If it's a little thing, you say, ah, you forbear. You just you put up with it because that's how we're dressed. That's how we're clothed in our new life that's hidden with God in Christ. Let me close with a, a beautiful collect from the Book of Common Prayer which asks basically that God would help us to love what he commands and to desire what he promises. Isn't that a great agenda for day-to-day -day life? Teach me more and more to love what you command and to desire what you promise. Let's pray. O almighty God, who alone can order the unruly wills and affections of sinful people, grant to your people that they may love the things which you command and desire that which you promise, so that among the many changes of the world, our hearts may surely there be fixed where true joys are to be found. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.